Today we have, um, I have the moderator script. Please turn off your cell phones. I'm the moderator today, Martin Heavyhead. Uh, today, the SACPA talk topic will be, what is it like owning a business in downtown Lethbridge during the drug crisis? I'd like to thank Shaw for being here. Uh, they'll record and broadcast on Shaw and also posted on YouTube. Today's speaker is Erica Piska. Erica is a leader in the downtown business landscape of Lethbridge for over 20 years. Erica is excited to share some of her experiences and thoughts on the ever-changing dynamic of downtown Lethbridge. Calling Plum Restaurant home for the last six years, Erica has insight on growing a business through economic and political shifts, ecological responsibility and hardships, and supporting people inside and outside Plum from all walks of life in our downtown core. Erica is a steadfast friend and colleague of many, and Erica is proud to call Lethbridge home for her family and business for a very long time. No, 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 no. I'm laughing at myself. So if uh, everybody would like to give a nice warm welcome to Erica Piska, and she'll speak about what it's like owning a, down, a business downtown Lethbridge during the drug crisis. Thank you very much. Um, I was just uh, I was just asked to come and speak today, just I think like 30 hours ago. So I'm really happy to be here, and I'm glad that I could say yes. And uh, I think it was actually Martin himself that recommended me to come and speak to you today. So thank you very much. I did think my parents were going to be here, so if they come, they have to come all the way from the west side. So who the heck knows? But the, the late arrivers are going to be my mom and dad if if they come. Um, so yeah, I. Um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a grim week, so I really appreciate everybody being here, and I didn't know last night even how I felt about being here. Um, with coronavirus and our uh, economy, you know, going through some major shifts uh, this week, it's um, particularly, I think, delicate and vulnerable time for a lot of us. Uh, my little son is four years old. His name is Michael, and four years ago, he's, he's four and a half, so four years ago this month, um, my son had RSV, that turned to pneumonia and he was actually starsed from Lethbridge to Calgary and was on life support um, at the Children's Hospital at this month four years ago and uh, my oldest daughter is 21 years old Gabrielle and she goes to Mount Royal she's in the journalist journalism program and she's in her second year and five days ago I think um, you know at Mount Royal they're really focusing on uh, sensationalization in the news and all of that that stuff and so she called me and she said mom don't worry everything is fine it's all sensationalized and then last night she called me and you know I shed a, I've been shedding tears probably every day um, because the word pneumonia to some families um, has a, as great of an impact as the word cancer or or death and um, for us the word pneumonia has rocked our entire family and um, you know, last night we had a, a little bit of a different conversation and I said, okay, we're going into lockdown at home and Michael and I are gonna build snowmen all week and mind our own business. So, um, you know, I, I agreed to come and do this talk and I have an event on Saturday night and then I think I'm gonna take two weeks off and just enjoy my kids. So um, I'm looking forward to that, but this is definitely kind of a, a poignant time um, for all of us. And so um, for me to be asked to speak on um, another sort of uh, vulnerable topic or delicate topic of the drug crisis that is all over the world. Um, but it is in Lethbridge and it has impacted, I think, all of us. 
um, I, I was really like, great, you know, I'm not standing here talking about prime rib or I'm not standing here talking about beef tenderloin, which I love. Um, but I think that um, I, I hope to be able to provide some insight um, as to what I've experienced and that's all I can really speak on. Um, with our drug crisis downtown is my own experiences and the things that have happened um, within Plum and uh, what I've been able to kind of see um, around our city, uh, particularly in the last year. Um, but my experience with the drug crisis goes far, far beyond that. My experience with the drug crisis goes far beyond a, a supervised consumption site. It goes far beyond um, opioids. And, um, and I think that, like I said, I'll probably hopefully be able to um, shed some light. I am looking forward to the question and answer uh, period after this. There's my mom and dad. We should probably clap for them when they walk in just to embarrass them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Come on in, you two. <laughs> Andy and Jerry. <laughs> Come on in. I said you were running late and that you meant to be here and that we would make sure everybody knew when you came in. Come on in. Yeah, you bet. You bet. Mom, we're just sitting right at this table if you want to join there. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so good. They're here, that's all that matters. They're both officially retired now, but that means that my mom's probably still working. Anyways, um, good, so like, like I was saying, my experience, um, I think with the drug crisis goes far, far beyond um, the supervised consumption, beyond what it is that we think that we see today that is so relevant. And I started my management career um, in 1996, managing the McDonald's on the north side. And I was 18 years old and was running this little restaurant and I had people from all different walks of life working with me. And the things that I know now about drug use, about um, addiction was absolutely there with me and I didn't know. I knew that there were people from all different walks of life. Some people had families that really loved and supported them and we would get to know them and some people didn't have anywhere to go on Christmas. And that sort of started my love of people. Um, and my love of um, the industry to say, well, we feed people all the time, and if there are people in need on my own team, of course that I'm going to feed them or provide for them. And I think that was when I really started to kind of look at the role of a leader within an organization and say, how do we provide for the people within our team that, um, I don't know details, and I don't know t details, but it seems that they don't have some of the things that I have. And that's kind of how I started my, my leadership career. And a lot of the people that I worked with at McDonald's years and years ago, um, I'm still a reference for them, or I still, um, you know, I'm, I'm able to continue to provide insight and vice versa. Some of them have gone on to be my colleagues and owning businesses, and some people have gone on to, um, you know, leave our city and do all different kinds of things. Um, I spent time with Sun Life Financial and I went all over the place, I went all over the country um, at these beautiful events that a lot of them, the celebration of what we were doing, the achievements of setting up people to financially succeed um, in their lives, the celebration of that was alcohol. The celebration of that were these big fancy events that were fueled with champagne. They were fueled with red wine, they were fueled with cognac, scotch. And I saw myself included because I, love champagne, I love scotch, I love cognac, and I really saw an association in this um, elite world of people that were doing remarkable things, and the reward to that was trips, and it was, it was this, this like um, a plethora of stuff, just stuff, which again, another form of addiction is greed, 
and, and taking things with us and, and then wanting to use substances to recognize the work that we're doing. And, um, and then again, back into the restaurant world, and I can still remember the first person that I really worked with that came to me and was open. And this was about 2008. And this person came to me and was very open with me about the struggles they were having in their life. And he was the best server I've ever met in my whole life. Like, he was incredible. And um, he needed help. And I didn't know what it meant, and I didn't ask if he was going to use the extra money he needed to go buy drugs. I just knew he needed help. And I found a way to help him. And when I showed that to him, the, the loyalty that came back to me, the benefit that came back into the business, I was like, whoa, we just had a barter. We just had a business relationship and an exchange. And I didn't know. And this person um, flourished with me and went on to own their own business and now is an advocate for working with people with addictions in the industry. And that is something that, um, what has happened with Plum. I have recently sold Plum and I'm in the process of selling Plum. And that process started about one year ago. I've had Plum for six years, and I knew that it was time for me to focus on new things. And a lot of people with the messages and the um, news of Plum selling have assumed that I'm walking away from downtown because it's too hard. Or they've assumed that um, this drug crisis or the things that we're seeing downtown have taken a toll on my business. But we had a 10% increase in sales last year. We just broke a million bucks, and I have 10 tables in my restaurant. I have 20 people that work for me. I have 14 full-time employees. Um, on my team, I have four recovering addicts. My head chef has been sober for six months, but in the last 18 months, he has been sober 90% of the time. And what I realized I was doing within my career was working with people that needed somebody to listen to, but I also needed somebody to listen to. I also had to look within myself and say, how do I celebrate? How do I spend my time? How do I spend my money? How do I recognize my team? Because this conditioning that I'd had since a young girl, since I was a young girl, not through my parents, but through parties and socialization and realizing that substance was always around. You know, you start drinking your first, your first uh, Rockaberry cooler when you're 16 years old and you go home drunk and you think your parents don't know. You, they knew, they knew. Um, but I had to take this deep journey within myself and realize that not only, was I, not only was I in a leadership position within an organization still, and I had been, within, I had been in leadership positions my whole career uh, since 1996, so I was in a leadership position, I am in a leadership position within this organization. I, have, I am a distributor of alcohol. I'm actually a drug dealer, and I am paid legally to provide alcohol to patrons within my organization, and I'm paid for that. It's legal. My friend Kelty is here, and she is also a dealer of beer through, the through Theoretically Brewing she owns. And I really had to look at my relationship as um, a, a person that was in this organization recovering and helping people that were addicted because addiction in the restaurant industry is huge. It is rare for you to be able to speak to a chef that has not either been addicted is addicted, knows people that are addicted, are using, staying up all night, giving Friday and Saturdays, you get off work at 2 a.m., you drink a case of beer, you have an event the next day, let's have some cocaine, gotta stay fueled for the next 24 hours, it's true. And we have heard about this in the media, restaurant owners, bar owners getting sucked in, whether it's gambling, whether it's addiction, where did the money go, how are people being treated? 
This has been a fundamental part of our industry forever, back to prohibition and beyond. And uh, so I, again, I had to look at my role within that and realize on one hand I was doing this work and on the other hand I was having resources given to me by distributing the exact poison that I had to be working on on this side. And I have seen many things in my career. We're, we're um, keepers of secrets in the restaurant industry. And that means if you have a lover, it's none of my business. And if that means that you drink three bottles of wine while you're out for dinner, I'm, gonna, I, I'm a responsible dealer. And I'm going to ask you not to drive. But I cannot control if you do or you don't. Um, I have chosen to be responsible with my patrons. And that's where I think Plum has built the reputation that it has. Um, through that looking at my role within that, that created a, um, a fundamental personal shift um, within myself. And I had to look at what was I doing? Was I drinking? Was I spending enough time with my kids? Was I distracted by things that didn't matter? And um, through that, I gave up alcohol. And so I have not participated with alcohol in seven months. And I'm the owner of Plum Restaurant. So you come to me, and I don't even participate with you anymore. Um, what started to happen at Plum is we really started to focus on this radical self-care, this idea of radical self-care, resting, communicating, eating, feeding ourselves, getting rid of things that were hurting us, ultimately. And then I looked out my window at Plum, which I love my downtown, I love our downtown, and I realized that this was just a smaller version of what was happening outside. It was just, it's beautiful. It's painted nice, it's private, there's money there. I'm of a certain skin color. Um, there has been other discrimination, trust me. People ask if my dad bought my restaurant for me all the time. <laughs> and if I'm not a chef, how dare I own a restaurant? So there's other pressures that I've felt on the other end of things. But all I really did was become awake. I just woke up and I realized that what we were specializing in behind the scenes at Plum was actually what was needed to help outside. And um, so we just started walking around. We started getting to know people. We started leaving bottles accessible for people to be able to pick them up. We started making food. I got to know people's names. I walked my dog all around and just made friends. And I realized that through all of the people's opinions on what it was, it, what it is that's happening, we've put ourselves under something I call emotional lockdown. And I was thinking about school systems, and I was thinking about um, the lockdown that, that our children are being trained in right now. And I was like, whoa, that's no different than how I'm feeling sometimes, or how people are telling me they're feeling. That we're afraid, we're, we're, we, we, we don't want to go there, we don't know, we have to stay safe. We aren't safe, we have to be prepared for the worst. And I, I, I study some Eastern, I don't study, I participate in some kind of Eastern philosophies and something that has really been with me a long time is the yin yang. And um, I'll just insert them here somewhere. Um, so here's the yin yang that you know, you've seen this symbol somewhere. And ultimately it means light and dark, yin yang coming together in balance. And this is something that, I mean, I'm surprised I don't have a tattoo of that when I was 15 years old. It's been with me a long time. I chose a butterfly instead when I was 15. But the yin-yang is something that I think has been around us for a long time, and there's lots of variations of this. But what I, what I started to think about as I was focusing on myself and my team was that it wasn't 
that this is a wheel and it should be turning. And I really felt like the, the, the yang, the dark part of this wheel has been hanging over us. And it's there and it's big and I feel it all the time. I feel it all the time. I feel it in every setback with the people I sponsor their rehabilitation downtown because there are people in need that I personally sponsor their recovery and that's my own business and that's my own, my own resources and my own time. But I realized that I was feeling like this and everybody I was talking to was feeling like this. And when I was able to start really kind of using a visual of this, um, I realized that there were wedges that were preventing this wheel from spinning because in any healthy environment, there's light and there's dark and it flows and it goes. And there were wedges causing this to not move. And through that not moving, it was keeping that darkness right above me. And it was keeping that darkness above. We, underneath there, we can say downtown, we can say the west side, we can say the north side, we can say the reserves, we can say wherever we want um, is below that. But I realized if I got rid of the wedges, if I got rid of fear, and I just didn't care about the hate because I, that doesn't belong to me. Other people's opinions of what's happening is not, I'm not in control of that. But if I freed those wedges, then this might be free to move again. And so for my personal commitment to the drug crisis is that I realized that the light doesn't have to overtake the dark and the dark certainly does not have to overtake the light but how can we create equilibrium again? How can we create balance? And I had to then look at myself and say, who am I? I'm a provider of love. I'm a provider of food. I'm a distributor of uh, positivity. I have been my whole life, even my report cards back when I was little. Erica is a ball of energy, but she needs to stop talking. And uh, <laughs> I wish they knew. <laughs> and I realized that the light doesn't have to become more than the dark, and the dark doesn't have to become more than the light, but they have to be in equilibrium, they have to be in balance. And all I'm in control of is what light do I have to provide? And through that, I realized that one of the best ways I could operate my business during a drug crisis, now make no mistake, this drug crisis was here long before the SCS, and it will be here long after. But there is no, I, I do gap analysis, where, uh, I'm sure I have a, it's in there somewhere, but it's, it's like, I, I realize that I think that our minds are like no drug crisis or pre-drug crisis, and then the drug crisis or it not existing anymore, and there's this gap, and we have this, this idea, this glorified idea that someday there's gonna be no drug crisis, and there's a gap between where we are and there being no drug crisis, and the gap analysis means that you take steps to close the gap between that, but I realized that's not true. That's not true. And so if all I do is try to put love into that, if, if all I do is try to put kindness and love and grace and food and friendship and, and all of those good things, it will allow some of the light to come back in. And so that's what I've chosen and what I've chosen to focus on during this crisis. One of the first things that I did within my organization was created a standard with my team. And the standard with my team was that we deal with reasonable people. We distribute alcohol and food, rack of lamb, to people that are reasonable, people that come to our door and are reasonable. They're reasonable in how they treat us, how they treat themselves, how they treat other people. And if somebody comes to my door, I don't care if they come from average Joes, 
I don't care if they come from the west side. I don't care if they come from the north side. If they come to my door and they're reasonable people, they're welcome in my space. If you're reasonable, I can serve you dinner. I can perhaps serve you alcohol. Depends how much you've had. But if you're reasonable in the way that you are treating yourself, and if you're able to maintain reasonability within yourself and you come to my door, then I have something for you. Uh, and that was number one, is how do we choose as an organization to treat reasonable people regardless if they have homes, regardless if they have money, regardless of what color they are? How do we at Plum treat reasonable people? So that was first, identifying what reasonable looked like. Reasonable people with money, reasonable people with no means at that point, and trust me, there are people over the years that we've helped that now have money and they have had no problem coming back and thanking us and spending it. Um, unreasonable people is something else. And there are plenty of unreasonable people that have consumed too much alcohol that I've had to kick out, uh, or, or people that I've had to say, you're not welcome to come back here because the way that you've behaved is unreasonable and we don't accept that here. So the same happens if somebody comes to my door and they are not reasonable regardless of where they come from or where they're going next. And so what we did at Plum was create a system of how we treat reasonable people and a system of how we treat unreasonable people. And that led me to understanding about uh, diversion outreach, so the DOT team, Sage Clan, the Watch, the City Police. And those were my allies in dealing with unreasonable people. And I realized that my responsibility at that moment was not to fight, it was not to become afraid, it was really to re, um, uh, kind of shift the unreasonability so that my people and my team in my space are safe and then follow up on that and say, okay, is this a, is this a common problem? Is this person showing unreasonable behavior consistency, consistently or is this a one-off? You know, what is, what is this person's relationship within themselves? So that was what we did um, at Plum. And that really just shifted where my team, all of a sudden, it, before it was like there was all this dialogue and it was like 40% of the time people, people felt, ah, they were like, we're supposed to feel scared. But now, if you go and talk to the team at Plum, they're like, man, we have so many friends. It's very rare that we see unreasonability. And when we do, we have the right people that will help the unreasonable people become reasonable in whatever they need to. And we've cultivated and built those relationships. So there's trust there. So again, we just focused on relationships and getting the right kind of support when we were dealing with unreasonability. And um, the last um, six months, like I said, I had handpicked my, um, I had handpicked the buyers at Plum. Um, I knew they were the right people to take over the restaurant. And I had a bit of an epiphany um, this time last year. And I realized that the next business that I own, it's called Next Door. Uh, well, that's not the next one. There's one in between Plum and Next Door. But I'm planning to open a private rehabilitation center with a restaurant next door to it called Next Door. And it is a cafe of chance. Second chances, 100 chances, 10,000 chances. Um, and uh, I have a, a wonderful board of directors and we're looking, we've done, uh, Ms. Kristen Krein, who is sitting right here, has done all kinds of research as to the systems all around the world that are like Next Door and there's nothing quite like it. So my lawyer was excited to uh, look into that and um, to really see what that could look like. And so that is 2022. Um, we will see Next Door open, and like I said, it will be a living uh, rehabilitation recovery space with a restaurant next door and people that are living, 
will work next door, and um, it will be it will be a system of um, of that. And there will be three menus, three stages of menus. So there will be a three-month menu of a very basic, brand new menu, and uh, people that visit can tell which stage participants are at based on what menu is being offered. So if it's very simple, you know, your coffee might be cold. And that server might not even show up to work, it's gonna be me. Um, and then the next menu is a little bit more in depth and you can tell the process that people have gone through in their rehabilitation by what food they're able to present and to prepare. And then the third menu is beautiful um, and, and solid and strong and we've built relationships with people and we're able to then place them in other places in the city. So that is a project that I'm working on, um, a passion project of mine and it actually came to me last year on Valentine's Day and I was in a well of despair. My best friend and general manager, Travis, had moved away and I was really feeling melancholy, but I felt that there was change happening within me. And I had this epiphany, I had this vision of next door. And the first business plan I ever wrote for a cafe was in 2008 and it was called Next Door. And I didn't know what it meant, but it stayed with me and now I know. Um, leading to Next Door, I realized that I could never have an organization like Plum that people would come, and Mar Martin Heavyhead always says that the cheese boards at Plum are really good, but they cost $80. And uh, <laughs> of course it's good cheese, it's really expensive cheese. And um, I realized that it wasn't fair to my team to be doing the work that I was doing, um, and then ask the community to provide for Plum so that then I could turn around and use those resources to help people that need help. And I didn't want that scrutiny and I didn't want the opinion. So part of selling Plum was to provide myself the freedom to do the work that I needed to do, not paid by the city and not paid by my patrons. Instead, to be independently financed to do the work that I needed to do. Um, I had another epiphany about four months ago and I was singing a song and it's by my, my uh, favorite artist, my favorite band in the world, Nako and Medicine for the People. And there's this song, it's called Build a Bridge. And it's, I have come to build a bridge, let's bridge, something like that. And I was like, let's bridge? That's too easy, let's bridge. So I'm uh, in the process right now of selling Beautiful Plum Restaurant, and I am starting a social enterprise called Let's Bridge. And it means let's bridge from the west side, let's bridge to the north side, let's bridge from the north side to the south side, to downtown, let's bridge to the reserves, let's bridge by um, helping people understand how to balance light and dark and what does your light look like and if you free yourself of this emotional lockdown of the darkness what is left within you and what is left in, within you that makes you feel good is the asset that you have to give this drug crisis if you choose it's also okay to say no it's also okay to say I choose to not participate or I choose to participate at the school in my, in my uh, neighborhood or I choose to participate because I had that friend and she told me about her son and I wonder if it's a drug thing because she's really confused. And I wonder if the problem that's happening within this organization has something to do with that. But it starts to, uh, it's, it's important to just start to, to pay attention and you will see it everywhere. It's not at the SCS alone, by no means. It's in my kitchen, it's behind my bar, it's, uh, it's everywhere. It's at McDonald's on the north side 20 years ago. Um, so I think that, like I said, it, it starts with an awareness within us that nobody is to blame and nobody is immune. Um, but if you take away the fear of the dark, what is left within you, 
and what is left within you is a way that you can help, if you so choose. And so that, that, um, that's pretty much it, I think, for now. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks.